Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's not just people in this room. We've got 470 in here, I think, and 250 by video link in the new theatre. And you're all here, of course, to hear from Harjun Chang. Uh, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro-directors at the school. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all to LSE tonight and, of course, to introduce tonight's lecture by Harjun, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism and What They Mean for Our Economic Prospects. Um, now's the time, please, if you would just turn off any, anything irritating like mobile phones. Harjun's going to speak for about 50 minutes, and then we'll move to question and answers. Um, the fact that there are so many people wanting to listen to Dr. Chang tonight, of course, is testimony to his work and also his skill as a lecturer. Uh, Harjun Chang is a regular speaker at LSE, I'm pleased to say, and I don't doubt that his talk tonight will be as witty and as provocative as his talks have always been in the past. I'm especially delighted to be able to welcome Harjun Chang tonight uh, because we used to be colleagues and it's been a great pleasure to follow his work over a number of years. Now, Harjun is a reader in the political economy of development at Cambridge University and I think he'll be well known to many of you here tonight, not just for his current book, which warns, amongst other things, that free market policies rarely make poor countries rich, and which notes that the washing machine has changed the world more than the internet has, uh, but also for his previous bestsellers, Kicking Away the Ladder and Bad Samaritans. All of them are written, I'm going to quote now, with, a, with charm and a desire to see how things work in the real world, which is how The Guardian has acclaimed Harjun's latest best-selling book, the one that he's going to talk about tonight. Now, it's quite extraordinary. This book has sold more than 600,000 copies, and Harjun got into the top 100 of the Amazon bestseller list. I've never been in the top 500,000 of the Amazon bestseller list. <laughs> so it's with a certain amount of uh, envy um, that I also introduce uh, Harjun here tonight. Um, Harjun uh, is also a past winner of the Lientiev Prize for Advancing the Frontiers of Economic Thought. Uh, we really are delighted that you're with us again tonight at LSE. Right, uh, thank you, Stuart, for that extremely generous uh, introduction. And I'm really glad to be here uh, three times in a row uh, in three years uh, to talk about essentially the same book, although I try to vary my lecture a bit uh, depending on the year and the current issues. Well, today we live in a very difficult time, I mean, probably doesn't feel as difficult studying in a privileged institution like LSE or teaching in a privileged institution like uh, Cambridge, but the world has been going through great turmoil. I mean, it's been over four years uh, since that famous collapse of Lehman Brothers, which uh, plunged the world economy into the biggest economic crisis uh, since the 1929 Great Depression. Output in many countries, especially in the developed world, 
including the UK, have not recovered their pre-crisis levels even after four years. I mean, this is quite extraordinary because in previous downturns, say late 1980s or late 1990s, uh, even in countries uh, in crisis uh, recovered their pre-crisis levels of income in about a couple of years. And it's taken twice that, and it's uh, not likely that countries like the UK will recover the pre-crisis level of income within the next uh, year or two. So we are beginning to think about the lost decade. Unemployment has uh, remained stubbornly high, despite the fact that the official unemployment figures inevitably understate the extent of the problem. I mean, particularly this time around, I mean, every time when you look at unemployment statistics, you have to realize that this counts only people who have recently actively worked for jobs. So if you have fallen out of the labor market, discouraged uh, from having made, I don't know, 200 applications and not even getting more than a couple of interviews and never getting a job, you will officially be counted as uh, someone who is voluntarily unemployed and therefore you are not counted as uh, part of unemployment statistics. So that's always there. Although the the, the proportion of uh, so-called discouraged uh, unemployed uh, tends to rise uh, during uh, crisis times. But uh, this time around, uh, what was uh, particularly striking was that a lot of people are officially employed, but only in part-time capacity, despite the fact that they actually want and need a full-time job. So on some estimate, if you count those people, unemployment rate uh, in, say, the United States uh, could be 16 17% uh, rather than 8%, 9% as the official statistics uh, say. Of course, uh, if you look at countries like uh, Spain and Greece, unemployment is uh, approaching 25% with youth unemployment uh, basically in the region of 50%. Can you believe? I mean, that every other youth that are normally defined as uh, those uh, between the age of 16 and uh, 24, they are unemployed. And in a number of countries, uh, severe cuts uh, in social welfare spending have been made in the name of balancing the books and fixing the economy. This has uh, created acute pockets of poverty at least, you know, food banks are back in uh, Britain, i.e. people starving. But in uh, some countries, uh, this has driven societies to breaking points. Yeah? Greece, Spain, increasingly Portugal, maybe Italy soon. Now, of course, uh, the funny thing about uh, my fellow economists is that, uh, you know, they recommend all these uh, policies to drive people, you know, 
off the cliffs, uh, so to speak, and then when there's a riot, they are surprised. Because uh, we are very good at uh, forgetting that behind these numbers, there are real people, yeah? people who have to eat, who have to go to hospital, who have to send their kids to school. Yeah? While all this is going on, few of the banks that have created, uh, bankers, uh, sorry, that have created all these problems, well, the, I shouldn't say just bankers, because there are all other types of financiers. It's not just the bankers. Uh, the, uh, Few of these people have lost their jobs, and most of them are still drawing astronomical salaries and bonuses. Things have been a bit better in developing countries. Uh, I mean, especially in countries like India and China, growth has been rather fast. But even in those countries, uh, there are signs of slowdown. Not surprising when many of these countries have relied heavily on export demands from the rich countries. So China got by by increasing government spending for a few years, but then as the order books are shrinking for their exporters, it is finding it increasingly difficult to maintain the growth momentum. But one thing people often don't know is that you know, these countries have been growing well. I mean, China has been growing at 10%, India has been growing at 7 8%. But there are huge tensions and violence going on even in those countries because uh, income inequality is rising and poverty is, uh, the, you know, still persists uh, in many areas. So unbeknownst to the outsiders, there are hundreds and thousands of literally incidences of industrial strikes, demonstrations, riots, all sorts of things happening every year in China. India is, uh, I mean, of course, uh, Stuart knows far more about India than probably anyone in this room, but, uh, uh, you know, India is uh, witnessing the resurgence of the Maoist uh, guerrillas uh, known as the Naxalites, which were very strong in the 70s, but uh, which everyone thought was uh, now a spent force. You know? But in the eastern parts of India, I mean, a lot of areas are basically controlled by these guys, uh, at least during the night. No? So even in the countries that are growing fast, you have all these social tensions, and a lot of people think uh, something has to be done you know, because that, uh, we have lost our ability to control our economy for the sake of the greater good. But then when you try to discuss all these necessary reforms, we are told by most economists that there is really no alternative to free market capitalism that you know, has been ruling the world uh, since the at least uh, early 1980s. You know? So, I mean, I'll, I'll get into some of this uh, later, but you know, despite the fact that a lot of people, including you know, Robert Wade here, have pointed out that uh, growing income disparity in the rich, developed countries 
has been one of the main reasons uh, for this uh, financial crisis, uh, despite the fact that contrary to the so-called trickle-down economics, increasing inequality has not resulted in higher growth and so on, we keep hearing that, oh, we shouldn't scare off uh, the wealth creators. Yeah? I mean, the conservative government here makes it a priority to take care of uh, the, the so-called wealth uh, creators, despite the fact that it's uh, really those banks uh, that have uh, broke our system, but we are told that, well, without the city, this uh, country will go down the drain, so the, the let's uh, keep light touch regulation and uh, tr try not to restrict their bonuses. Yeah? I mean, they say, well, you know, we don't necessarily like this, but uh, what else are we going to do? There's no alternative but, uh, to free market capitalism. Now, my book uh, has been written to show that, you know, that there is an alternative. Actually, there are more than one alternatives uh, to free market capitalism. And in order to do that, the book questions some of the most basic assumptions, theories, and numbers that we tend to take for granted when you think about our economic problems. Now, as you can see from the cover of the paperback edition, the book has been written in the spirit of Dr. Seuss. You know, the color is uh, very Dr. Seuss, uh, the, so is the picture, I hope. I didn't draw that, but. Uh, I think they've done a good job. I mean, to the extent uh, that I call my chapters actually things, yeah, named after these guys. <laughs> Some of you know them, yeah. Famous thing one and thing two from the Cat in the Hat. Yeah, I'm sure some of your parents uh, have uh, read them to you when you were trying to sleep as a child. Now, thing one says that there is no such thing as a free market. Now, I mean, a lot of people find this uh, quite counterintuitive. I mean, uh, you know, people say that, well, you know, I don't like the free market myself, but, you know, we know what is a free market when we see one. You know, maybe it's like the elephant, maybe it's uh, described difficult to describe in words, but you know, when you see a free market, you know what it is. Yeah? But my question is, uh, do we really? And to pursue that question, I talk about the case of child labor. You know, that, uh, when the Industrial Revolution happened uh, in the late 18th century in Britain, child labor became a huge problem. And of course, uh, poor children have work all the time. Yeah? So it's uh, not as if uh, the, the 18th century people invented child labor. But uh, what became the issue was that you know, these children were now working in very crowded, dangerous conditions. Yeah? I mean, especially because of the invention of machines made it possible for these uh, physically weaker beings uh, to replace yeah, adult workers. Yeah? So they were doing a lot of adult work. And this uh, caused a lot of concern. So 
1819, there was an attempt by a group of uh, reform-minded British MPs to introduce regulation against child labor. So they tabled this motion in the parliament. Now, this motion was uh, incredibly kind of uh, basic by today's standard. Yeah? So what did it say? It said, well, very young children shouldn't work, yeah, shouldn't be allowed to work. How young was very young? Any guess? Well, you are heartless. Yeah, the, the <laughs> no, no, although, I mean, uh, Daniel Defoe said that uh, children should uh, start working from the age of four or five. Uh, you know, I mean, these were kind of quite nice people. Uh, so they said that anyone under the age of nine shouldn't be allowed to work. Hmm? Older children up to the age of 16, because above 16 they were treated as adults. Older children should be allowed to work, but then their working hours uh, should be limited. Now, to how many hours a day? Any guess? Twelve, yeah, you got it right, yeah, you know. I mean, this was a time when average working hour was uh, like you know, 15 hours a day, so they are not going to let these youngsters get away with six or seven. You know? And this regulation was supposed to apply only to cotton factories, because cotton factories are considered especially dangerous, you know. I mean, they, the manufacturing process at the time created a lot of this dust, you yeah? know. And then they settled in the, the workers' lungs. They got uh, lung diseases. They died. Yeah? I mean, uh, maybe some of you have watched uh, this uh, BBC adaptation of the classic novel uh, uh, called uh, North and South, yeah? where the heroine, who's a kind of, uh, young lady from the South, uh, first, for the first time in her life, uh, visits a cotton factory and comes back with the remark that I've seen hell and it's white, snow white. Yeah? So the, they, they try to regulate the cotton factory. I mean, not even coal mines, yeah? only cotton factory. Yeah? So minimum, minimum, minimum. Yeah? Even this was uh, rejected uh, by the parliament. Well, most people in the parliament, although in the end uh, they, they kind of got uh, this passed, although the rest of the parliamentarians uh, wouldn't give uh, them a budget to implement the law, so it yeah, just exists on paper. But anyway, so even this uh, the minimal regulation was resisted on the ground that this undermines the very foundation of a free market economy, namely the freedom of contract. Yeah? So the opponents said, look, these children want to work, and these people want to employ them. What is your problem? Huh? You know, it's not like these people kidnap these children and use them as slave labor. Huh? It's a free contract based upon you know, mutual consent. I mean, if you deny something like this, uh, you will undermine the very yeah, foundation of a uh, free market society. Now, today, few people in Britain and other rich countries 
including the most enthusiastic supporters of free market policies, would object to regulation of child labor. Well, there's one exception, Newt Gingrich, who wanted to bring back child labor by hiring poor children as the, the student janitors, basically you know, cleaning the school under the supervision of one other janitor. Anyway, but you know, most people would say, yes, I mean, child labor should be regulated. Yeah? Most countries ban it, basically, except for a few hours of you know, paper rounds and that kind of stuff. But when you think about it, this is a huge regulation. In, especially in many developing countries, basically half the population are children. So banning child labor in that kind of context would be equivalent to the British government tomorrow saying that anyone with national insurance number that ends with an odd number would not be allowed to work from tomorrow. Yeah? It's a huge regulation, but today no one thinks that, that this is a regulation because they have so totally accepted the underlying premises that children need to have a childhood and have an education and not allowed to work, that they don't see these regulations anymore. So, <clears throat> freedom of a market is, well, as they say, like beauty in the eyes of the beholder. So if you agree, happen to agree with this uh, ethical position that children should not be allowed to work, yeah, you, you wouldn't see any regulation, but uh, if you don't happen to agree with it, you will say, what kind of uh, that, uh, labor market is this? Half the potential labor market entrants are structurally banned from entering the labor market. Hmm? Well, basically the point is that all markets are propped up by numerous regulations on what can be sold and bought, who can sell and buy them, and how the exchange may be conducted. And we think a market is free only because we so totally approve of the underlying regulations that we don't see them anymore. You know, let me give you an example. You know, you talk to any professional economist and try to provoke him or her by saying, is it really a free market as it exists in the textbook in the real world? Well, probably he or she will say, well, probably there isn't, but then the chances that he or she will tell you that, however, the stock market pretty much approximates the ideal market in the textbook. Now, does that mean, however, that I can turn up at the doorsteps of the London Stock Exchange tomorrow morning with a bag of shares of my own company and sell them there? No, I'm not allowed to sell them there because I have to get listed first. Yeah? So does it mean that I can just write a letter saying, I want to get listed, I want to sell my shares there? And they'll say, yes, uh, come tomorrow. No. I mean, I, takes a lot of time and effort. Yeah? You need to basically submit 
a lot of information about your accounts and yeah, the criminal records of uh, the members of your board of directors and whatnot for three, maybe four or five years, depending on the exchange you are talking about, stock exchange you are talking about. And then you get listed. Yeah? Now, does that mean then I can, after five years, uh, turn up and sell the shares? No, I'm not allowed to do that. Because shares can only be bought and sold by certified traders. And even when they sell these shares, I mean, there are all kinds of restrictions. I mean, there are circuit breakers, that are meaning that if uh, the price of some share goes down by more than a certain margin, the trading is uh, suspended in the belief that that kind of price movement can only come from irrational panic yeah, rather than rational calculation. Yeah? If uh, the whole stock market uh, uh, goes down by more than a certain percent, a lot of stock exchanges impose uh, holidays. Yeah? So they shut down the stock market for a few days until people restore the, their calm, yeah? and so on. So even the stock market, which you think is basically a very free market, has uh, all those regulations. Yeah? But then when you think about it, why do you... Yeah, I mean, if you're a true believer in free market, why do you need those regulations? You know, there was a time when companies uh, didn't even have to reveal their uh, balance sheets uh, to sell shares. You know? And actually, that, that, uh, until 1900 in this country, which is supposed to have had at that time the most developed stock market in the world, you didn't have to publish uh, your balance sheet uh, to be listed on the stock market. So they introduced this law saying in, in 1900s saying that uh, com country, uh, companies that uh, should provide uh, their balance sheets uh, in annual general meeting of the shareholders. But then someone forgot to say that this uh, balance sheet should be the current year's uh, balance sheet. Yeah? So a lot of companies kept giving this uh, the balance sheets for past years. Yeah? So every year they would uh, give the balance sheet for 1900. Yeah? They never broke the law. Yeah? Until this law was fixed in 1928. Yeah? So if you work with uh, that kind of uh, frame, I mean, you know, you could uh, make a quite robust free market uh, style argument saying that, you know, uh, you should I mean, after all, the people like Hayek I think uh, there should be competition between currencies. Yeah? So you could argue that, that, that different stock exchanges that, uh, should be set up and compete with yeah, lack, uh, lax regulation or the, the tough regulation or whatever. And you know, I mean, that, uh, if uh, one of them provides the best mixture of regulation and uh, freedom, but it will survive over others. And therefore, government has no business in requiring that uh, these stock exchanges should have this regulation, that regulation. Yeah? Why not? Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that market is basically a political construct. Yeah? You know, free market economists that, uh, will always try to tell you that, well, this much is the domain of the market. Yeah? Don't let political logic undermine this area. Yeah? So create an independent central bank, create an independent uh, regulatory authority for your utilities. Yeah? I mean, create uh, even the, the in, 
political independent revenue authorities in the case of uh, World Bank, uh, as it recommended to some African countries. So they like to portray all regulations as politically motivated interferences in the free workings of a natural system, but when there is no way to scientifically define a free market, free market positions are as political as any other position. So thing one ends by saying that breaking away from the illusion of the market objectivity is the first step towards understanding capitalism. Now thing two gets even more outrageous uh, that companies uh, should not be run in the interest of their owners. Now what am I talking about? You know, this sounds crazy, you know, I mean shareholders own companies. And we all know that owners tend to take better care of their property than you know, those who are renting them, for example. So these owners have the biggest stake in the long-term success of the company, and therefore what is good for them must be good for the company. Now, this might work when you have you know, things like ownership over fixed assets by a single individual, but it doesn't quite work for modern companies because these are limited liability companies, meaning that people risk only the capital they invested in their shares. I mean, there was a time when limited limited liability didn't exist, so in those days, if you go bankrupt in your business, you have to sell everything you have, yeah? your pots, your pans, uh, the, uh, your clothes. Yeah? If you still cannot pay, you go to debtor's prison. Yeah? So limited liability is actually a recent invention, 19th century essentially. In modern companies with li- limited liabilities, with tens of thousands sometimes uh, shareholders, despite being the legal owners, most shareholders are actually the least committed to the long-term future of the company because they are the freest to leave. You, know? you, know, you can sell shares like that, whereas uh, if you want to get a job as a worker in another company, I mean, of course uh, nothing is uh, keeping you from doing it, but you know, I mean, uh, you, you have to incur substantial cost in uh, finding another job. So it, uh, you are not that free to leave. And especially in the last three decades with increasing financial deregulation, free-floating shareholders have become even more powerful than before. So, for example, in the UK, average shareholding used to be about five years in the mid-1960s. So when you buy a share, you on average, hold, hold on to it for five years. Today, this is uh, something like seven months. Yeah? I mean, some people that, that in the media have talked about quarterly capitalism, basically companies running their companies with a view to maximizing yeah, profits for the next quarter. Now, it's not exactly quarterly, but basically you are now under pressure from so-called owners uh, who own the company for two quarters, maximum three quarters. And as a result, hired managers have decided to run the company for the sake of 
shareholder value maximization. So how do you do that? First of all, you maximize short-term profit. How do you do that? You sack anyone that you can, everyone that you can think of. You don't invest, especially in yeah, uh, long-term things like R&D. Yeah, of course, uh, this creates uh, problems uh, that uh, workers are demoralized, that they are overworked, your technology is outdated. But do you care? Because uh, that's going to affect the company three, four, five years down the line. And as a hired manager, you will probably not even be there when that happens. Yeah? Now, having maximized uh, the profit, you give away an ever-increasing share of that profit to the shareholders through increased dividends and share buybacks. This is a practice where companies buy their own shares to prop up uh, share prices, yeah? which makes uh, shareholders happy. Yeah? So according to the, and this uh, statistics is actually not cited in the book because it came out uh, afterwards. According to the calculation of the American economist uh, Bill Lazonic, top 500 U.S. companies gave away 94% of its earnings through dividends and share buybacks. And the U.K. companies, similar U.K. companies, uh, gave away 88%. You know, given that most of the companies in rich countries like the U.K. and the U.S. invest out of retained profit, this means that they are not investing. You know, I mean, this that uh, that that. Uh, Share going to the shareholders, even in the U.S. where this is the most advanced, used to be in the region of 45 to 50 percent. So you keep half the profit to invest in machines, R&D, whatever. The other half goes to the shareholder. Today, this ratio is 5 to 95. You have no money to invest. Well, no wonder companies like General Motors has that gone bankrupt. You know, people don't often realize how historically significant uh, the bankruptcy of uh, General Motors is. I mean, I dare say that this is uh, even more significant than the fall of the Soviet Union. Hmm? No, I'm really serious. Back in 1955, General Motors alone produced 3.5 million cars. In the same year, all the 12 Japanese car companies, including Toyota, collectively produced 70,000 cars. You know, Toyota produced uh, 35,000 cars, 1% of uh, General Motors. You know, 50 years later, this tiny company overtook uh, General Motors, and two years later, the General Motors went bankrupt. Yeah? This is uh, what happened. And this is why even Jack Welch, uh, who actually invented this uh, term shareholder value maximization, said that shareholder value maximization was, and I'm quoting him, the stupidest idea in the world. You know, this is like Karl Marx denouncing communism. (laughs) Well, these are the first two things, and I mean, obviously, you didn't expect uh, me to talk about all the 23 things. So I, I give you a selection uh, here that, uh, to give you a taste. Uh, yeah, the washing machine, I mean, I'm not going to talk about it now, but if anyone wants to take it up uh, in the Q3 
Q&A session. I'm very happy to talk about it. I mean, it's arguably the most controversial claim in the book. Uh, and, and, yeah, we have, oh, yeah, I think 23. That may be very popular among my colleagues. Uh, Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about some of this, but uh, let's uh, does, I mean, see what uh, we can do. Um, okay, let's uh, concentrate on things uh, where I can show some nice pictures. Um, okay, let's go to thing three. Most people in rich countries are paid more than they should be. Right, um, you know, we have been told by free market economists that people are basically paid what they are worth. You know, what I call the L'Oreal principle, yeah? I get paid what I get paid because I'm worth it, yeah? Yeah, Cheryl Cole would agree with that, yeah. So uh, we have been told that you shouldn't complain about the income inequality. You know, the fact that Mr. Bob Diamond gets paid 50 million pounds, I mean, it's a reflection of market forces. You know, I mean, he's worth that uh, 50 million pounds. I mean, and then you get paid, you know, 15,000 because you are worth only that much. Yeah. Well, so we have uh, come to accept this logic, and we think uh, poor people. In, especially in poor countries, are poor because they are not very productive. Huh? But is that really what's going on? Huh? And to talk about this, I talk about two bus drivers. Uh, well, of course, hypothetical bus drivers, but I've made them realistic enough. Uh, one guy is called Ram. He's an Indian. He's from Rajasthan. Drives his uh, bus in New Delhi. Another guy is called Sven. He's from Stockholm. Uh, went to high school, uh, did 12 years of education, but you know that's I mean, that about this. So he ended up driving his bus in Stockholm. Yeah? Now, according to the ILO statistics, Sven gets paid about 50 times what Ram does. But is it because Sven drives 50 times better than Ram does? Now, first of all, it's uh, not clear whether you can you know, measure a driver's productivity in that kind of way. But even if you can, I mean, is it really possible that one person drives 50 times better than another? You know, I mean, maybe it uh, is possible if you are comparing me with Lewis Hamilton because I'm a lousy driver. But between two regular bus drivers, you know, and if anything, Ram should be the most skilled driver because uh, he has to drive on a road like this. Yeah? <laughs> you know, all these cows and motorcycles and bicycles and rickshaws and children running around, you know. I mean, has Sven ever had to dodge a cow? <laughs> yeah, maybe if he's a rural bus driver, he may have to have uh, dodge a moose, but, you know. No way in Stockholm. But despite this, uh, he's getting paid 50 times more. Why? Well, the simple answer is uh, protectionism, yeah? immigration control. 
Sven gets so much because he shares his uh, labor market, if you like, with other people who are highly productive and that are willing to pay a lot of money to those who are driving bus. But if you actually totally freed immigration, probably 80, even 90% of the workforce in the rich countries can be and will be displaced. And I'm not just talking about bus drivers and cleaners. I'm talking about bankers, engineers, medical doctors, economists. You know, I should know. I replaced a British guy 22 years ago. Now, I'm not advocating a full liberalization of immigration. I don't have to. I'm not a free market economist. You know? I don't have to uh, advocate liberalizing everything. But, you know, free market economists have to take this seriously because uh, when they advocate liberalizing international trade, liberalizing capital flows, why not flows of people? You know? Well, actually, I've seen only one or two free market economists who advocate uh, liberalization of immigration. So, you know. This actually proves my earlier point that markets are fundamentally political constructs. Eh? There's nothing in economic theory that says that we have to have labor immigration control. I mean, it's a political position. Eh? Anyway, the flip, oh, sorry, yeah, no, I uh, didn't show you, you know, Sven's work environment. So you can yeah, see, you know, as far as you can drive straight, he can do his job. Anyway, so if uh, this is a case, uh, there are all sorts of uh, interesting ramifications that, uh, from this uh, story. Because first of all, then you realize that the poor countries are poor not because of their poor people, but because of the rich people. Yeah? You know, if you meet uh, rich people from poor countries, they'll typically say, oh, you know, look at all these lazy, ignorant, uh, poor people. You know, they are really pulling the country down. You know, I mean, if uh, they work as hard as the Japanese and if they were as disciplined as the Germans and as uh, inventive as the Americans, we'll be a great country. But, you know, look at these people, you know, lazy, ignorant. Well, then you should tell him, because it will be typically him, uh, that, uh, sir, that uh, you may not have, have uh, realized it, but uh, it's actually you failing to pull the country up, yeah, the rest of the country up with yourself, uh, that, that is making your country poor, not those people, because they can really hold their own against their counterparts in the rich countries. Actually, uh, many of them tend to be even more skilled and more productive than their counterparts in the rich countries. Eh? Now, that leaves the rich in the rich countries. So can they pat themselves on the back and tell us that, well, only we truly deserve what we earn? Well, I don't think so, because you know what people don't often realize is that uh, the high productivity of those people, in the, uh, the rich people in the rich countries, critically depends on the fact that they were born into or at least migrated to societies with advanced technologies, well-organized firms, good institutions, and high-quality physical infrastructure. And most of these are things that have been collectively accumulated over time 
and not something those individuals have created themselves. You know? Yeah, Warren Buffett, uh, in one of his interviews in the 1990s, which I cite in the book, made this uh, point very uh, powerfully. He said, you know, drop me in the middle of Bangladesh. Uh, what am I going to be? Uh, I'm going to be a farmer. Uh, and I'll be a very poor farmer because I'm no good at growing anything. Uh, because even by, the, therefore, even by Bangladeshi standard, I'll be a poor person. Uh, now, I'm so rich uh, because I hap happen to have a uh, bone in this country which uh, excessively values my financial skills. So I consider most of my money to have been earned by the society rather than by myself. Yeah? You know, he's a smart man. He understands this. Yeah? Barack Obama tried to articulate this at the, at the recently when he said, you know, when someone succeeds, there was always someone else helping them, maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was government grant or infrastructure or whatever. But basically, we have to realize that the, our productivity is collective. Yeah? It's not a pure individual creation. Yeah? And this means that, therefore, you know, the, there's a good case for you know, rich people paying higher taxes and so on. And also, the, you know, I don't understand about this uh, the, the country because uh, you are so afraid of losing these uh, rich people because uh, despite the fact that these are the people who have created all this trouble, yeah? let them go. Yeah? <laughs> no, really, I mean, if uh, the, the, these things are so, uh, taxes and uh, things are so important, why aren't they all moving to Jamaica? <laughs> no, income tax in Jamaica is 5%. Yeah? Why don't they all move their business to Albania, where corporate income tax is 10%? You know, they stay here because uh, this country provides yeah, great educational institutions like uh, LSE. I mean, that, uh, got, well, rail is a problem, but that, uh, generally decent infrastructure, got good legal system, and so on. Yeah? And these are all collectively created things. You know, I mean, uh, Richard Branson didn't uh, create those things. Yeah? Alan Sugar didn't create those things. Yeah? Anyway, so the, this uh, brings me naturally to, oh gosh, I have been talking too slowly. Um, okay, the, I think uh, I'll move to thing 15, which I think has uh, nicer pictures. Uh, you know, uh, this has uh, all these uh, boring people like Ricardo, Stalin, you know, <laughs> Prebrozensky. Uh, we can talk about them later if you want, but, you know, think 15. Right, poor people in poor countries are more entrepreneurial than people in rich countries. You know, this man once famously said that uh, the problem with the f French is that they don't have the word for entrepreneurship. <laughs> you know, don't laugh. He was a busy man. You know, he. You know, had to invade Afghanistan and Iraq. He had to worry about North Korea. You know, he had to, you know, to, uh, do some avant-garde experiment with English grammar. <laughs> you know, you cannot expect him to do everything. You know, so. 
we have to excuse him for his uh, poor French, but you know, he was actually articulating a fairly common Anglo-American prejudice against France as an undynamic and laid-back country like this, uh, full of meddling bureaucrats, pompous waiters, and sheep-burning farmers. Well, sheep-burning farmers' uh, stories uh, that uh, are a bit complicated. I'll tell you about it if you want. Anyway, this particular conception of France actually turns out to be wrong, as I'll show show you later. But the perspective behind his statement is widely accepted. You need entrepreneurial people to have a vibrant economy. You need uh, people who want to make money, who are good at making money, if uh, you want to have a dynamic economy. And in this view, the poverty of the developing countries is attributed to the lack of entrepreneurship in those countries. So, you know, people from rich countries go to developing countries and come across a scene like this, and they say, oh my God, I mean, I know why this country is poor. You know, look at all these men having their 11th cup of uh, the mint tea of the day and piping away their hookahs, you know. I mean, this country needs more go, go-getters, yeah, to kind of uh, go out and make money and you know, uh, be entrepreneurial. Now, of course, uh, the anyone who is from or has lived for a period, at least, uh, in a developing country, know that uh, the more typical scenes in developing countries are like these. You know? You know, millions of people buying and selling everything you can think of and also things that you never knew could be sold and bought. You know? Uh, let me give you a few examples. I mean, I, in the until the 1980s, uh, the, they used to exist uh, this uh, professional professional cure uh, in my native South Korea. This was uh, particularly popular for those who wanted to get a visa from the U.S. Embassy because at the time they you know, gave out this uh, that uh, application forms for interview for only a limited number of people on a first-come, first-up basis. Yeah? So you actually had to go there very early to get this. So some entrepreneurial Koreans uh, that, uh, invented this uh, new profession called uh, professional cure, yeah? which is, well, you wake up at uh, 4.30 in the morning, go and line up in front of the American embassy. Yeah? Come 10 to 9, uh, some guy in a sharp suit comes along and says, well, that spot looks very nice. Uh, uh, do you mind selling it to me? Yeah? And then, yes, uh, that if you're in front of the queue, you might even get like 100 bucks. Uh, if not, uh, 50. You sell the uh, place and uh, you have made your wage for the day. Yeah? Or when I first went to South Africa, well, not first, very first visit, uh, but uh, the third visit, I think, uh, I was taken to a restaurant by a friend of mine he parked his car, and then some guy suddenly appeared and said, oh, I'll watch your car. And my friend gave him money. Yeah, you do that. And I said, what are you doing? Watch the car? No, no, no. My friend said, what he means is that if you don't pay me, I'll slash your tire while you're gone. You know, there are all kinds of... Very, very clever entrepreneurial schemes in developing countries. Huh? 
Actually, the, 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 when I gave this lecture a couple of years ago, the, I think it was uh, probably in SOAS, uh, the, from, uh, the, in SOAS uh, around the corner, someone gave me another interesting example, the, which I describe as uh, Indonesian carpoolers. What it is is that in Jakarta, the government introduced this uh, fast lane where only cars with more than like uh, three people can you know, run. Yeah? So this uh, entrepreneur young man that, that started that, that hanging around at the start of this lane, and then some guy in Toyota Land Cruiser pulls up and says, hey, you and you, get in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so they ride uh, on the fast lane, and these guys get paid. Uh, they get off uh, at the end of the lane, and uh, the guy is happy. They are happy. Yeah? You know, basically, people do everything to make a living yeah? because they are desperate. Yeah? Most of uh, people in these countries are basically one-man entrepreneurs yeah? or one-woman entrepreneurs. Yeah? In contrast, most citizens of rich countries have not even come near to becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah? You know, a lot of people work for giant companies, uh, hiring uh, tens of thousands, even millions of people, hmm? doing highly specialized and narrowly specified jobs, and in the process realizing someone else's entrepreneurial vision. Yeah? They don't decide what to do. I mean, they are told what to do. And in fact, uh, if you compare the numbers, uh, it's uh, very clear. I mean, uh, if you look at the proportion of self-employed people is far, far higher in poor countries. You know, basically the chance of someone from Norway being an entrepreneur in the sense of being self-employed is 13 times lower than the same chance for someone from Benin. Yeah? Because in Benin, nine out of ten people are running their own enterprises. You know, maybe it's just themselves. Uh, maybe it, uh, it's uh, themselves and their dog, but you know, they are running their enterprises. And if you look at this slide, uh, you will see that that comment by Dabia was uh, basically put calling the kettle black, you know, because U.S. and France are two countries with one of the lowest share of uh, self-employed people in the world. Uh, basically, France is a bit more marginally more entrepreneurial than the U.S., but not by much. Uh. Now, if the, entrepreneur, uh, the developing countries have so many entrepreneurs, why are they poor? And, and I mean... The book has a more complete answer, but basically the simple answer is that entrepreneurship is not an individualist endeavor. We need a whole host of collective institutions. We are to channel entrepreneurial energy into the right kind of high productivity activities. Yeah? The scientific infrastructure, the corporate institutions, the legal system, the financial system, you know, this uh, links uh, nicely back to my thing three, where I said, 
our individual productivity is in large part collective. Yeah? You know, there are all these people exercising their entrepreneurial initiatives are to the limit. Yeah? But those things in developing countries do not amount to much because the institutions are deficient, the infrastructure is poor, the legal system is not functioning, and so on. Yeah? So when you understand this, you, you begin to see why the so-called microfinance industry has delivered so little in terms of economic development, despite all the expectations. I mean, I'm happy to talk about this uh, if you want, but I cannot go into that. Okay, so to conclude, uh, in this book, I tried my best, uh, oh yeah, I'll, I'll show you the full list of uh, things. I've tried my best uh, to dispel the widespread perception that economics is too complicated for non-economists. Now, actually, when you think about it, it's very interesting because you know, people have all sorts of uh, strong opinions on all sorts of things. Yeah? I'm sure you have very strong opinions on climate change, uh, gay marriage, yeah? immigration, yeah? what have you. Yeah? But how many of you have the right qualifications to make yeah, a strong judgment on those issues? Yeah? Yeah. I mean, do you all have uh, degrees in international relations uh, that uh, before you can pronounce that Iraq war was wrong. You know? Do you have a uh, degree in climate science uh, that uh, when you say we need to do something about global warming? Yeah? Do you have any experience in uh, you know, uh, labor economics uh, that uh, when you say that uh, we, we you know, need to have a strong migration control or otherwise? No. So when it comes to all these issues, you have very strong opinions without you know, the necessary so-called expertise. But when it comes to economics, you think, oh, yeah, I don't have the expertise. Yeah? Let the, the, the people in the Bank of England and the IMF and yeah, the European Commission deal with it because I don't know anything about economics. Yeah? This is a huge problem yeah? because that... that <laughs> You know, the, why do you have uh, such a strong opinion on everything else except for economics? Yeah? And this is uh, creating the vacuum for these people basically to take you for a ride. Yeah? But uh, as I try to show in the book and uh, say in the book, 90% uh, of economics is, well, 95% actually, I say, 95% of economics is actually common sense. Of course, are made to look complicated with the use of you know, uh, equations and graphs and statistics. But actually, uh, they are not that difficult. I mean, of course, uh, there are some technical materials, but uh, even they you know, can be explained in plain terms, you know, if not in all you know, uh, details. So through this book, I wanted to encourage my readers to educate themselves uh, in economics. Yeah? You know, you don't need a huge range of knowledge. Yeah? You know, that you, you need to have some yeah, fundamental economic reasoning and some basic but often misunderstood facts. Then you can exercise what I call active economic citizenship. Yeah? 
But because uh, so many people have been scared off from understanding the economy, you have become real victims of all these people who basically flee off uh, the rest of the population. So I really urge you to take an interest in economics. I'm not saying that I have monopoly over truth. I mean, I I think that, that, that we could do it a lot fewer self-righteous people who think uh, only they have the answer. So please uh, don't believe me. But I mean, one thing I can clearly say is that you know, if you begin to look at these things more closely, a lot of things that you thought were all proven and everyone agreed and so on are no such things. You know? A lot of things you thought were facts are not facts. I mean, even starting from the fact that you know, French fry was not invented in France, and <laughs> yet cuckoo clock was not invented in Switzerland, and you know, Panama has not made in Panama. I mean, there are a lot of things about economics that, uh, which uh, you thought were true, but they are not. You know? So please, I mean, uh, take a look at the book and. I mean, also, if you're interested, you can find a bit more about what I think and do as an academic in various websites of mine. And, yeah, I mean, I'll be happy to answer your emails, although it might take a long time. I, in the end, answer 99% of my emails. I mean, it could take six months, mind you. But <laughs> So let me finish there and take questions and comments. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm um, happy to do it from here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, just, just before we go to questions and answers, we're going to take three questions at a time. There are lots of copies of Harjun's book outside, so as soon as we finish at 8 o'clock, uh, people that want to buy the book and have it signed by Harjun, if you would go outside, buy it, Harjun will stay here and he'll sign it. Um, thanks very much for a, Thank a you. very interesting and entertaining talk. So um, just let a couple of people leave if they're going to now. We'll take three. Uh, if we start upstairs, gentlemen there. Well, if you wait for a microphone to come to you. Yeah, thanks very much, and uh, I'm here actually because my daughter has bought your book and uh, will be uh, popping over to, uh, to get it signed by you. <laughs> at, the, at the very beginning, you talked about the, the state that we're in, and given mm-hmm. the state that we're in, it's natural that we want to look to where we should be going to rather than what our political masters and better tell us what we should be doing. Yeah. And you've also painted uh, pictures and given examples of the problems that we face now and have faced in the past to get us to where we are now. Can you give us some examples of, of what good looks like in, in the real world, something mm-hmm. that would actually give us some inspiration as to where we should be uh, pressing policy makers to take us? Yeah. Okay. Try and take two more from upstairs if there are any. Yeah, there's a gentleman behind you. Anyone else upstairs? There's quite a few hands downstairs. Um, thank you very much for the comments about South Africa. I enjoyed it enormously. But... Um, when it comes to property rights, mm-hmm. what is your stand on that? I mean, I could buy your book, but I could also just go and download it. Sure. 
Um, so, but from a development perspective, I'm just mm-hmm. wondering what your take on that is. Yep. Good, sharp, short questions. Excellent. Anybody else from upstairs want to have a go? Uh, we'll take the. Uh, this gentleman had his hand up first. I'll take you next time around. Thank you, uh, Michael Climes, um, Gigi Press. Um, when you look at the U.S. economy, uh, and when Mr. Krugman says it's uh, Keynesian, it's just um, a demand problem, aggregate demand problem. Um, but then when you have more maybe Austrian school uh, type people saying it's not just a, um, uh, a, demand, a demand and spending problem, but it's also a, a sort of a structural problem in the type of skills, maybe the new jobs which are being created, the uh, U.S. Uh, workforce maybe doesn't have the skills to take those mm-hmm. higher-end jobs. Um, what's your opinion on that? Because I think Mr. Yep. Clinton, in his speech, um, said that you know we've got three million jobs which have been created um, when he was at the Democratic Convention. But the problem is that we don't um, ha- we don't have three million Americans who are highly skilled enough to take those jobs. Mm-hmm. And I remember Mr. Krugman on his New York Times blog specifically critiqued Clinton on this point, saying that I thought he gave a great speech, but where he was wrong was on this three million point because we don't have a skills problem; we just have a have a, a lack of demands mm. spending your income problem. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Um, yeah, since uh, the first and the third questions are related, uh, let me first uh, deal with the second one. Um, you know, basically I operate with a quasi-Marxist principle that people should pay what they can afford. So, you know, my rule of thumb is that if you are from a country with less than $10,000 per capita income, you are most welcome to pirate copy my books. <laughs> if you are not, well, probably you should pay a bit. Yeah? <laughs> well, I grew up uh, reading pirate copied books, so I'm not going to deny that, that uh, to, to other people. You know? uh, so, I mean, that's uh, my position on that. Uh, if you are interested in uh, my view on intellectual property rights that uh, you can read uh, uh, the chapter from my previous book called Bad Samaritans titled uh, Windows uh, 98 in 1995 no, 1997 sorry uh, uh, this uh, referred to the fact that when I visited Hong Kong in 1997 they were already on the street selling Windows 98 so you know <laughs> Copying has uh, progressed so much that now copy comes before the real thing. You know. <laughs> this is that uh, interesting world. You know. Anyway, that on yeah, that various uh, problems. Yes, I mean demand is a problem. I mean I think it will be silly to deny that, but demand is only part of the problem. Yeah. And the U.S. economy has uh, serious uh, underlying problems. Skills is yeah, probably one of them, but uh, the issues that I talked about in relation to corporate governance and investment and so on, because when corporate managers are basically geared towards maximizing profit in the next three to six months, they do not invest enough in research skills. You know, don't forget that skills are not created just in universities. You know? I mean, people actually pick up a lot of skills while they are working. Yeah? If you don't create jobs, actually you are investing less in skills. You know? I mean, uh, somehow economists have convinced you that, that uh, as far as people have more degrees, there will be more skills. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of uh, skills are created in the universities cannot be used in industries. You know? So, I mean, that 
I, I would uh, argue that both are problems, but this uh, skills issue cannot be simply resolved by investing more in education. You need to think about creating jobs, creating the right kinds of jobs, which uh, can be done only when there are sufficient investment in research, training, machines, infrastructure, and so on, which countries like the U.S. have been neglecting. Eh? Now, that, that uh, brings me to what do we want. I mean, you know, I make it clear in the book that uh, despite all these uh, problems, I still think uh, capitalism is, yeah. well, I mean, I, I actually paraphrase Winston Churchill uh, regarding what he said uh, about democracy. I say that capitalism is the worst economic system except for all the others. Yeah. So that's my position, but I emphasize the fact that there isn't just one way to run capitalism. We have been told that there's only one way, and that's the free market way, that's the American way, more or less. But when you think about it, the, the different countries have very different ways of running capitalism. You know, the difference between Japanese and American capitalism is well known, but uh, you know, think about Sweden, Germany, France, they all have different systems. So my position is that there are many different ways, and of course, uh, I mean, what is the ideal mix uh, depends on your moral values, your political positions, and your country's uh, natural conditions, and even culture, and what have you. But you know, I mean, there are some general principles that you can apply, and you know, those are mainly about you know, kind of. Uh, Invest, investment in things that raise productivity in the long run, yeah? machines, technology, education, infrastructure. Yeah? We need uh, more financial regulation. I didn't have uh, time to talk about it, but that, uh, basically that the problem of our time is, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, uh, even if I say we need more financial regulation, I'm not one of those anti-finance guys, you know, I mean, uh, both uh, from the right and the left, uh, we have this uh, the wave of anti-finance uh, movement, so people saying we should, you know, basically uh, abolish the central bank, go back to gold standard on the right, and the left-wing people basically saying, yeah, all banks uh, that uh, should be basically made into utilities and so on, but, you know, I, I believe that... Uh, the the enormous uh, development of capitalism in the last uh, two centuries owed a lot to you know, financial innovation. Problem is that uh, recently the financial innovations have become toxic. You know? They have become devices uh, to make money for the sake of making money. And this is why Paul Volcker, the you know, former chairman of the US uh, Federal Reserve Board, uh, said that the only socially useful financial innovation in the last 50 years has been the ATM. Yeah? <laughs> and I wouldn't go far uh, as far as uh, he, he does, but uh, we need a serious uh, uh, rethinking about uh, financial regulation. So in the book, I propose that overly complex financial derivatives basically need to be approved uh, before they can be sold. Uh, a lot of people uh, react to that saying, oh, that's dirigist, yeah? I mean, uh, what does government know about finance? But then we actually do that kind of thing all the time with other things, yeah? especially the pharmaceuticals. Yeah? 
because drugs are complex, uh, because uh, the drug, uh, drugs effects are difficult to understand, we do not let the uh, drug companies sell drugs uh, before they can, through quite a lengthy and convincing clinical trial, they can prove that these drugs are quite safe. And why do, they, uh, why do we not do that about financial products? You know, I mean, this uh, financial crisis made 80 million people lose their jobs. And God knows uh, what kind of uh, the, the personal and family problem this uh, the, the, the has created. Yeah? I bet yeah, you know, many millions of people had their family ruined and their health ruined and, yeah? I mean, all sorts of things. Yeah? But then we still sell these uh, financial products. You know, I mean, the, the cavalier attitude uh, of uh, the financial industries, you know, I mean, the people now have understood that uh, these uh, financial derivatives are quite dangerous. So if you look at the CDS market, CDO market, the market is tiny now because uh, people don't want to deal with it. Yeah, fine, but uh, can we do it before it actually kills you know, people? I mean, that, uh, can you imagine a world where the government says anyone can sell any drug? If uh, the more than the, the half a million people die from some drug, we'll then ban it. Yeah? No, we don't want that. Yeah? <laughs> so uh, we need a totally new approach to, to financial regulation. Yeah? I mean, well, don't get me wrong, once again, I mean, I'm not anti-finance, but I mean, the, the financial industry in the last uh, few decades has uh, become yeah, basically the proverbial tail that wags the dog. Yeah? And that, uh, I mean, that, I don't have time to go into them, but uh, I, in, at the end of the book, I spell out eight general principles, which I think uh, we need to think about uh, if we want to create a better world. But, I mean, of course, that uh, when you really want to do that, I mean, we need to sort out a lot of details. Yeah? I mean, that uh, you can leave to kind of uh, specialists, but as a uh, you know, citizens of uh, sovereign citizens of democratic countries, you have to have a view on these things. Yeah? You can't just uh, let uh, the, those uh, technocrats, economists, and so on, that uh, basically decide your future. Yeah? Anyway, I'm, I'm going to try and take hands that I've seen in a sort of order. This young man here was first, and I'm going to go to the back. Then you're in the queue. Yeah, um, I can't help but notice that most of the most um, vocal critics of neoliberal economics do not have positions in economic departments, mm -hmm. such as yourself and um, Dr. Wade here at LSE, is um, well, do you feel that there is an unwillingness in economics departments to accept opposing views uh, on orthodox economic thinking? And if so, do you see any signs of change in the future? Mm -hmm. There's a gentleman right at the back and then a young lady three to his right. Would you agree that it's somewhat ironic that the person who was actually speaking from where you are now last night yep. was the governor of the Bank of England, oh. introduced as Professor Sir Mervyn King, and he accompanied his lecture with no less than eight tables and graphs. Mm. And yet this is the man who was so slow to react on Northern Rock and has been widely criticised for being behind the curve in the financial crisis ever since. Finally, isn't it economic illiteracy 
to actually impose the kind of austerity policies led by Germany on the southern European countries at the moment when they have no option to devalue and basically we're seeing the consequences. Even here where we have the option to devalue, austerity is not working. (laughs) That's right, yeah. That was a quick answer, which is good too. Yeah. <laughs> I elaborate, yeah. <laughs> Maybe one more? Uh... Yes, we've got the mic. I think. Ah, right. You had an interesting point as one of your things on um, the development of Africa and that um, Africa is not destined for undeve- underdevelopment. Mm-hmm. Um, this is true. You've got 91 million <coughs> people being added to the labor force. You've got an increase in consuming cl- um, con- the consuming class. And so... Um, but you've, then you've also got, for example, 60% of the world's unused cropland in Africa, which someone argues not being utilised to its full potential. So if, if we are to see a development continue, how, how, how do you see that happening? And what would you see continue to be reformed? Mm. Right, well, thank you for those uh, interesting questions. Yeah, I still have my job in the economic faculty, but, yeah, I mean, that I will be lying if I uh, don't uh, admit that I'm totally isolated. You know? I mean, there are only a few people who uh, think like me, and uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not saying that all mainstream economists are like that, but most of them have a very narrow definition of what economics should be and how you should do economics and so on. So unless you do sort of uh, neoclassical rational agent maximizing models using mathematics and statistics, you don't count. Well, I mean, uh, with uh, advanced apologies, but, you know, the greatest term of abuse among economists is uh, that, oh, he's a sociologist. I already apologized uh, to the sociologists in this room. Yeah? <laughs> but this is very curious uh, because when you think about it, I mean, uh, other subjects do not take that kind of attitude. I mean, go to a department of uh, biology. Yeah? Uh, people do all kinds of things. I mean, uh, some people build, of course, uh, mathematical models of animal behavior, but there are others who go into the jungle of Rwanda and uh, sit with the gorillas. You know? There are other people uh, killing rats all the time. You know? <laughs> people doing DNA analysis, people you know, doing uh, the anatomy and so on, and they are all called biologists because uh, they agree that uh, living things are quite complex things and you cannot understand them with just one method. You know? But when it comes to economics, uh, people do not accept that kind of attitude. So I'm not one of those people who say that there's nothing right about neoclassical economics and whatever methodology I'm using is the right one and so on. You know, I, I'm a met- methodological pluralist. But unfortunately, most uh, of my colleagues do not have that uh, open-mindedness and tolerance. So what can you do? No, but then, uh, you know, uh, in a way, I'm uh, winning, uh, uh, despite my reservations about the free market, I'm winning through free market. You know, I I dare say that uh, there are very few economists who have sold as many books as I have. (laughs) 
So if uh, they think the uh, market knows the best, <laughs> of course, uh, when it comes to data turf, uh, they say, no, no, market doesn't know the best. Yeah? So the, the interesting uh, phenomenon. Yeah? No, yeah, Professor uh, Marvin King used to be a professor here. So, I mean, that, uh, we know that, that, that uh, he was a very respected uh, economist, but, you know, what does my 23rd thing say? I mean, you don't need uh, the good economists to run good economic policies. Yeah? Actually, a lot of uh, that, uh, uh, people who engineered uh, economic miracles in East Asia were not economists. Yeah? Uh, basically, all the Japanese uh, economic bureaucrats are lawyers. Korea also had very high proportion of lawyers uh, in the economic bureaucracy, especially in the early days. People who are running economic policies in China and Taiwan are mostly engineers and scientists. Yeah? Whereas uh, I was uh, informed by a Guardian article that the finance ministers uh, of uh, Greece and Portugal, two countries in great trouble, something like 80% of them have uh, PhD in economics. Yeah? <laughs> so. Unfortunately, because uh, economics has uh, that, uh, become so narrow and so detached from the real world, being a great economics uh, professor doesn't mean that you can run economic policies well. And yeah, basically, you have to see it this way. I mean, if you are clever enough, you can justify everything. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you can build a very elegant model of uh, justifying austerity, uh, just justifying, you know, I don't know, whatever. But the test is in the real world. You know? If it doesn't work in the real world, it doesn't work. You know? Unfortunately, a lot of academics have this uh, attitude that if it doesn't work in the real world, it must be the world that is wrong. You know? <laughs> no, seriously, I'm, I'm not joking, yeah? No, you, you can see it from the way, for example, I mean, now it's uh, that, uh, finally changed, uh, that, that, uh, it's mine quite a lot, but uh, that you can see it uh, from the way in which uh, the IMF uh, reacted this uh, continued uh, policy failures in the 80s and 90s. Yeah? So in the beginning, when it, uh, their structural adjustment program didn't work, they said, oh, no, no, we need time. You know? I mean, these things uh, require a few years, I mean, not just uh, six months. Yeah? After a few years, it didn't work. Uh, and then they started complaining about, oh, these uh, governments dragging their feet uh, not to reform. Yeah? And then yeah, they put a lot of pressure on these governments. They implemented all these reforms. And then it still didn't work, and then they said, well, it's because they didn't implement these things hard enough, yeah? so do more, yeah? and so on. So they always find excuses. Yeah? And then finally, they came up with all kinds of uh, excuses, you know, which I collectively describe as uh, ABP, that is anything but policy. So they now talk about climate, yeah? they talk about culture, they talk about geography, they talk about the institutions. You know? anything but their own economic theory. So there's a serious problem there. Africa, well, you know, it's a continent with a lot of potentials, but also a lot of problems. But what is sorely lacking at this moment, although there is a growing recognition, is that it will never get out of poverty simply by relying on what nature has given them. You know, 
arguably Australia is uh, the luckiest country in the world because that, uh, in terms of per capita deposit of minerals, it's by far the richest in the world. Yeah? But even Australia has a manufacturing sector that is 40, 50 times bigger than a typical African country. Yeah? And Australia's manufacturing sector is by far the smallest in the rich world. Yeah? It's at, at, uh, more than one-third smaller than the next smallest one. Yeah? <coughs> so if uh, the Africa keep, uh, keeps relying on the things they find in the ground, on the ground, yeah? It will uh, never get out of it. I mean, uh, in the end, I mean, uh, the, how do countries become rich? Yeah? Because uh, the, they yeah, select activities that bring high returns. Yeah? As simple as that. Yeah? And are they naturally determined? You know, I mean, can you think of any reason why the Japanese m uh, must be good at making cars? Yeah? Why the Finns must be good at making mobile telephones, you know. And Americans, you can understand, you know, it's a huge country, you have to get from A to B quickly. But Japan, for God's sake, I mean, you don't even have enough land to drive around, yeah? <laughs> so how come they become good at making cars? The Finns, you know, I mean, I've been to Finland many times, and they're very capable people, but there's one thing they cannot do, which is talking, yeah? <laughs> very quiet people, yeah? So when they do not uh, even talk to people sitting next to them, why do they need a phone to talk to someone? You know? <laughs> you know, Koreans, you can understand, because like the Italians, we like to talk. Yeah? <laughs> so we used to say, oh, I wish I could carry my phone. You know, the wish has been granted. Yeah? <laughs> but why the Finns? You know? Well, these countries have become good at those things only because they decided that they will become rich by doing things other people cannot do. And they invested huge amount of energy, money, yeah? human labor, and that's how they become good. Yeah? So don't you believe all those people who come and say, oh yeah, this country has enormous mineral potential, forget about manufacturing, just let yeah, the Canadians and the Australians come and dig out these things. Don't believe those people, yeah? because uh, no country has ever become in that kind of way. Yeah? Maybe we have... I think we're probably going to have yeah. to call it to a halt. Um, we're not obviously going to beam this to Finland after those <laughs> remarks. Um, if, if ever you want to comfort yourself in you feeling sort of isolated at Cambridge or economics, haven't you? let me tell you that when I came here in 2001, I was listed on the web, I was listed in the telephone directory as a professor of human biology. We don't have a biology department. <laughs> <laughs> I did wonder what they were trying to tell me and where the gorillas were. Um, I love thank, this story. I'm going to thank Harjun. That's an absolutely true story as well. I'm going to thank Harjun on behalf of all of us for what he always does, which is to provide an absolutely sparkling, incredibly witty, thought-provoking talk. Um, just before we do thank him formally with a round of applause, it's just been fantastic to have you back here. Thank you. Again, let me just remind you again um, that if you do want to buy a copy of his book, there are lots of copies outside. Please go there, buy them. Harjun will stay up here and he will sign the copy. So hopefully we can give him a nice warm round of applause.